We have words of Stephen Boletto, and he asks us whether we remember the scene at a guest house in the movie Cabaret as the main characters, Sally Bowles and Brian Roberts, travel through the German countryside with the wealthy Baron Max von Heune. As Sally sleeps off a hangover in the car, Brian and Max have a drink in the bucolic beer garden of the guest house. The camera shoots the faces of the typical-looking German crowd laughing over drinks and chess matches. As the band dies down, the young lad who is there, who could be the poster boy for Aryan good looks, begins to sing. Again, cabaret is not a musical in which people break into song unremarked, so the crowd takes notice. At first, the shot is tight on the lad's face, and the singing is cross-cut with faces from the crowd reacting with interest. His song begins as a romantic idol. The sun on the meadow is summery warm. The stag in the forest runs free. But gather together to greet the storm tomorrow belongs to me. As he sings, the crowd grows more and more interested, and there is soon a dissonance between the beauty of the song's lyrics and melody and what we see on the screen. The camera pans down from the boy's face to reveal first a neckerchief, then a uniform, and then the Nazi armband that was first introduced with the brown shirt in the Kit Kat Club. With the revelation that the sweet singer is a Hitler youth, the scene turns chilling. It turns out that whatever beauty the song may possess, its real function is to consolidate the crowd and marshal them into one uniform voice. of Stephen Boletto in the journal Criticism in 2008. The scene is chilling, especially because it is a young lad who is leading the way and drawing others into the song's vision. And it was just such a chilling experience author Susan Campbell Bartoletti had when in the course of her research for a book concerning World War II, she discovered the extent of the role young people came to play in the Third Reich. Susan Campbell Bartoletti from Northeastern Pennsylvania is a Newbery Honor winning writer. She's written books for young people on topics from the Great Irish Famine to labor strikes led by young people in the coal mines here in Pennsylvania and in the garment industries and the cotton mills as early American industry was taking shape. And she always speaks directly to her young readers without sugarcoating because she believes in them and teachers and parents and other educators celebrate her body of work for that reason. 
we had a chance to speak with Susan Campbell Bartoletti about one of the darkest historical subjects she has ever tackled, the young people who were caught up in the activities of the Hitler Youth. The complete title of the book is Hitler Youth, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow. And we began with her decision to take on the tale. The way I began, my publisher, my editor, had approached me and asked me if I would write a book about uh, the American experience during World War II. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a subject that I am very much interested in. And so I began to research. And like whenever I dive into something, I like to dive in, get in the complete background on a subject. And so I thought, well, World War II, let's start with Germany. And as I began to research, I came across a very interesting sentence that was given by an American journalist by the name of Carl Patel. In 1944, Carl wrote that the Nazis rode to power on the shoulders of politically active youth. And that just turned my heart over. I thought, my goodness, is it true? Is it true that young people in Germany actually helped Nazis and a man like Adolf Hitler come to power? Now, of course, I don't believe everything I read. I I like to do a lot of my own research. And so I ran to the library and I started filling up bags with books about Germany and history. And as I read, I wanted to find out if this was true about the role of young people And indeed, I I did find out that young people were very active in campaigning for Nazis and for Adolf Hitler in, you know, 1930 to 1932. They really wanted to see as many Nazis get elected to positions of leadership in Germany. Actually, what I had to do then, I started, you know, researching and writing and writing and researching, and my deadline was coming due. And I wrote to my editor, and I said, I think we need to change the contract for this book. I think we need to focus on the role of these 8 million young people who joined this organization called Hitler Youth. And and so to really look at that subject, and she agreed that naturally. She said, okay, let me take this to meeting. And so she took the change that I wanted to make to meeting, and I was very happy that the marketing people and the rest of the publishing people went along with it. But in order to look at the role of young people, we really have to look at where Germany was in 1932. You know, Germany was suffering from the same stock market crash, the same Great Depression that the United States and other countries were suffering from. You know, we tend to think of the Depression as being uniquely American, but it wasn't. Other countries were suffering as well. Germany was also, as a result of of that Depression, they were suffering from, you know, large numbers of unemployed. They were suffering from widespread poverty, and they were suffering from very high taxes called reparations. When they lost World War One, they signed a treaty um, that is considered harsh um, by today's standards, I guess. But as a result of losing World War One, they had to pay the other countries for the damages that they had caused. And so they had to pay very high taxes called reparations. And that meant that the German people were responsible as well. And as a result of these things, you know, the German people were also 
experiencing a great deal of shame and humiliation because their once mighty country, this strong military country, was no longer as strong as it once had been. Uh, They were only allowed to have a standing army of 100,000 men, the number of Navy ships and other military equipment that they had had um, were, were restricted. And they also had lost some of the other territory that once belonged to Germany. So in you know the early 1930s, along comes this man named Adolf Hitler, and he promises to make things better for the German people. He promises to um, get rid of that Treaty of Versailles. He promises to create jobs, to end unemployment, and most of all, he is promising young people a way forward. He wants to give them hope for their future. And I'll, I'll read you a, a quote that he said, I begin with the young. We older ones are used up, but my magnificent youngsters are there finer ones anywhere in the world. With them, I can make a whole new world. Well, a lot of young people who weren't even old enough to vote got on board with these promises. And when he was running for president in 1932, these young people climbed into trucks. They campaigned for Nazis and other Nazis to get elected to power. They went to villages and towns, and they spread all this propaganda out there. And in 1932, when that election was held, Adolf Hitler lost. You know, I think this is something we, we often forget is, is that he, he never won any election. He never won any office. The German people re-elected their previous president, Paul von Hindenburg, because there were many Germans who did not think Adolf Hitler would make a very good leader. He did come to power when President von Hindenburg named him chancellor. He appointed Hitler chancellor of Germany, which was like the second in command, you know, the second most powerful position in Germany. And so Hitler was appointed chancellor on January 30th, 1933. And throughout Germany, the Nazis celebrated with these torchlight parades through the cities and the towns and the villages. And, of course, a lot of young people who had supported the Nazis were supporting him in in those parades as well. Was there yet a formal organization for these young people? Well, the Hitler Youth came into being in in the mid-1920s as they were following Adolf Hitler as he was you know, rising in popularity, that they did join these Hitler youth groups. There were a lot of uh, youth groups in Germany at that time. But they didn't formally uh, come to power until after Adolf Hitler was named chancellor. And what ages are we talking about then? Well, once he became chancellor and once the Hitler youth became a formal group, Adolf Hitler then banned all other youth groups. And so the only youth group that young people could belong to was the Hitler Youth. It was a requirement. It became a requirement for boys and girls ages 10 to 18. Um, You know, the boys and girls who were required to join the Hitler Youth had to be what they called Aryan. They could not be Jewish. They weren't allowed to be disabled. And at its height, there were about 8 million young people. But there's also an interesting statistic because of all the eligible young people, I came across a statistic that 82% of eligible young people joined. So there were some young people 
who did not join, even though it had implications for their futures. The consequences of not joining were then not being able to be hired eventually or not being able to receive schooling, those sorts of things, not physical punishment, or was that part of it? Yeah, no, there wasn't a physical punishment. You know, when they were required to join, if they didn't join, they might have to go to a weekend detention or they might have to go to a, a juvenile detention for a longer period of time. It went on what we would call their permanent record, and a letter would be put in their file, which meant that certain opportunities later in life would be available to them, whether it be school, higher education, or a particular job. Also, they could be fined if they didn't join the Hitler Youth. Their parents might even be sent to prison for a short time, or they might even lose custody of their children because they were considered not fit parents. When the youth group was formalized, were they pretending that it was like scouting, or was it clearly about indoctrinating these young people into the way of viewing the world of the Nazis? Well, they did a lot of activities that young people actually enjoyed that we might associate with scouting troops. They'd go camping. Um, they would you know, do a lot of outdoor-type activities. But it was really Hitler's aim that all young people would be educated physically, intellectually, morally in National Socialism, because he really wanted all Germans to share the same worldview. And so, you know, he started with requiring young people to join the Hitler Youth. In the Hitler Youth, they wore uniforms, they learned to march, they learned to drill. Then he went after the school curriculum, and the school curriculum was rewritten so that it only conveyed Nazi-approved ideals. In the Hitler Youth, they learned to handle weapons. And, you know, both boys and girls found a lot of these things terribly exciting. It also gave them a sense of power because it empowered them in a way that they hadn't felt empowered before. I remember interviewing a woman whose first name was Elizabeth, and I talk about her in the book, where children were told that they belonged to Hitler. They were his children. And when she went home, she was young, seven or eight. She told her parents, I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to Hitler. And they got angry with her, and they stuck her outside the house, and they shut the door. And she turned them in. She reported that. And they were sent to prison for a couple of weeks. And when they were released, they came home, and Elizabeth said, we never talked about it again. And that was something that was so important to you in the course of creating this book, wasn't it? That you didn't just do the research from secondary sources. You didn't just go into the archives and read the accounts, firsthand accounts. You Mm -hmm. actually were able to do this book while people were still living and actually contact people like Elizabeth. Yes, I reached out. I contacted people like Elizabeth. I interviewed men and women who lived in Germany, who lived in Austria, who had left Germany after the war and were now living elsewhere in places like Australia or England. And I also, as you mentioned, you know, did a lot of archival work. But through word of mouth, through the Internet, I was able to collect these firsthand interviews with a lot of these people. And What I found is that there were a lot of people who refused to talk, but when I interviewed Jews, men and women who were children and teenagers, 
during those 12 terrible years of the Third Reich, not one person refused to talk to me. And what did they make of the young people who were their age doing this dastardly work of propagating this vision that was actually putting them in mortal danger if they realized that? I mean, these are people who, you know, went to school. These were their classmates. And were these children then, say the 10-year-olds at the lower end of the spectrum, they were being what? Brainwashed? How do you make sense of the continuing of these people, these young people? Fear? You are someone who pays attention to the nuances. So you had to bring out the complexities of that. Well, I mean, you had young people who didn't see, I mean, it's very easy from our vantage point today, our historical vantage point to look back and say, look what happened. How could they not know? And it is this, for many, it is this willed ignorance. There's the question of when do people develop a conscience, right? And, you know, the consciences developed at a very young age. And so I think what happened is a combination of what you just said. Yes, we might say some were brainwashed. Adolf Hitler wanted a brutal youth, you know, young people who would grow up hardened. And, and that's what he was getting. That's what he was getting. There's also this balance of power that's tipped where young people had so much power over their teachers. They could turn their teachers in. They could turn their, their parents in. You have this whittling away at, at humanization when you saw what the Nazis were doing. First, they expelled the, the Jewish children from school. They weren't allowed to attend school with German children. And the reason given was because of overcrowding of classrooms. Then, then, then you had where Jewish children were forbidden to attend any school. Then you had books that were banned, any book that did not promote the national socialist ideal was banned. You had curriculum rewritten so that it would promote these ideas. Uh, you have Jews then who were forbidden to have certain jobs and forbidden to enter certain professions. Then it became illegal for a Jewish person to marry a, a non-Jewish person. So, like little by little, you're, you know, these young people were seeing how humanity was being stripped away, and it's the dehumanization I think that led to the, uh, to the perhaps we can say the numbing of their brains. You've spoken about interviews that you've conducted, and you tell a very powerful story about three friends who were involved in resisting the Nazis. When I traveled to Germany to do a lot of this research, I went to the city of Nuremberg where these massive party rallies, Nazi rallies, were were held each year. And the last one was held in, in 1938 because the next year Germany was at war. And I stood on the podium where Adolf Hitler had once stood at Zeppelin Field and where he would hold these massive, he'd give this roll call speech, and the field would be just filled with tens of thousands of Nazi soldiers. And I can remember as I stood there, this overwhelming feeling of sadness as I looked out over that field and as I imagined how it looked when it was filled with soldiers. And as I stood there and looked over the field that day, I thought how it only took 12 years. It only took 12 years 
from the time Hitler became chancellor to the time uh, the Nazis were defeated at the end of World War II in 1945. And I wondered if there was anyone who stood up to the Nazis. And of course, we know that there was that group of Nazi generals who stood up. But I was wondering about young people, because I mentioned that number before, 82%. 82% of young people joined the Hitler Youth. That meant 18% did not for some reason. And I like looking at the agency of people who live through difficult times. And I like looking at what young people have done and are capable of doing. And I came across a couple of really interesting stories. I came across one mention of a 16-year-old boy named Helmut Hubener, who, at the age of 17, was the youngest person on death row in Nazi Germany. And when I found that out, I thought, oh, my goodness, what could he have done? And it turned out he was a political prisoner. When World War II, when Germany invaded Poland and, and World War II broke out officially on September 3rd, 1939, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis passed a law called the Extraordinary Radio Measure, which made it illegal to listen to any news from another country. The Nazis said it's not the truth, it's all, I'll use the word, fake news, and they didn't want German people to listen to the BBC or any other broadcast. People were caught listening to the radio. They could be sent to prison for up to seven years. But if they told other people what they had heard, then they were considered a traitor, and traitors were put to death. So Helmut Hübner had an older half-brother named Gerhard, who had been in Paris after the fall as part of the Reich labor movement. And when he came home from Paris, he brought with him a shortwave radio. Now, it wasn't illegal to have a shortwave radio. But it was illegal to listen to, you know, tune in news from other countries. So he brought this radio home, and he locked it in the closet at his grandmother's house where Helmut lived. And he told his brother, now, don't touch it. <laughs> you know, someday the war will be over, and we can take out the radio. We can listen to it. And then Gerhard got drafted. And so he got drafted into the German army. And then I like to ask young people, well, what would you do <laughs> if your brother told you not to touch a radio? And, of course, many young readers will say to me, well, of course I'd touch it. And so Helmut Hubener did what many young people would do. He, he jimmied open the lock at his grandmother's house, and he took out the radio. And at night, at 10 o'clock, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, would broadcast news into Germany. And because they knew so many Germans were listening to the radio on the sneak, they broadcast the news in the German language. So Helmut Hubener was listening after his grandparents went to bed. He'd listened to the news. And as he was listening to the British news, he realized that the British were telling the truth about the way the war was going and that the Nazis were lying to the German people. So he invited his best friend, Karl Heinz Schmibbe, over. And Karl was 17 at the time. And then they invited their other best friend, Rudy Vobi. Rudy was 15 at the time. And the three boys began to listen to the radio together. Helmut Hubener was a very good student, a good writer. He began to take notes on the news. And then he turned those notes into essays. And they were essays that criticized the war, Adolf Hitler, the Nazi government. And again, this was all illegal because freedom of speech had been taken away from them. Well, they made copies. He made copies of these essays. 
And at night, the boys would sneak out after curfew, and they would distribute these essays and scatter them on the streets of the city where they lived. The boys thought they were too smart. They would never get caught. Well, they also made a promise to one another that if one of them got caught, that that boy would not turn in his friends. As it turned out, Helmut Huberner got caught, and he was arrested by the Gestapo, and he was taken to prison. And it's a known fact that a grown man would not survive more than 24 hours during a Gestapo interrogation because, of course, they used beatings and other means to extract information. Helmut Huberner held out for almost 48 hours before he couldn't take it anymore, and he gave up the names of his two friends. And so all three boys were arrested and hauled in. They spent six months in prison, and then they appeared before what they called the Blood Tribunal, which was the highest court in the land. And the judges, the three judges, wanted to make an example out of these boys. And Helmut Hubener remembered his promise, and he insisted that he acted alone, that no one else helped him. And when he realized that they would all be sentenced to death if they were found guilty, he acted in a manner that drew the judge's attention. And I'm not going to tell you what he did, because I'm really hoping people out there will look for the book, you know, look for the book called The Boy Who Dared, because that's where I also tell the true story. I tell it in this book, Hitler Youth, but I also tell it in The Boy Who Dared. And as a result, Helmut Hubener was sentenced to death. And that was for standing up. You know, Erica, I think that young people have a very strong sense of justice. They know right from wrong. They don't like it when life isn't fair. They, they want to fix it. And that's what we see in, in Helmut Hubener. We see a young man and his friends who knew things were going on that should not be going on. And they wanted justice and they wanted things fixed. But, you know, Erica, as I was doing this research, I also know that many young people wonder if they have what it takes. Do I have what it takes to be a hero? Helmut Hubener was a hero. These three boys are heroes. And this is a question that a lot of young people ask themselves today. And, you know, I, I tell them that you can, you can learn for yourself if you might have that strength and that courage by practicing every single day. There's always someone or something that you can stand up for. The other question that arose for me during the research of that story and the research of these people, the Jews who, who suffered these horrible conditions, who ended up surviving concentration camps, I also wonder about being a survivor. How can we know if we can survive a terrible ordeal? And, you know, Carl Heinz Schnibbe, who was in, he's the man I interviewed, and he's the one who told me the story of Helmut Hubener. And I also interviewed Helmut Hubener's brother, Gerhard, because I wondered, how, would, how did he feel being the one who brought home that radio, you know, that caused such tragedy for Helmut and, and Carl and Rudy and, and for their families? And so my question was also, like, how do you know if you have what it takes to survive? You know, I've, I've written so many things, so much about young people who have used their energy and their power to lobby and to fight for things that were all, all about human rights. When we think about working conditions and, and safe working conditions. And so, you know, a lot of my earlier work has had to do with that. But, you know, I, I think what happens when young people are lied to, 
you know, someone like Adolf Hitler, who, who was a madman, and, and his Nazis. And I think about that and the implications and what happened to those 8 million young people who followed him during those years of, of the Third Reich. And at the end of my book, one last quote of Hitler's that I end on is, what can happen to a people whose youth sacrifice everything in order to serve its great ideals? I feel that, you know, when I look at protests, we, we talk about the young people who did protest Hitler and who broke the laws and who suffered terrible consequences, Helmut Hubener, Karl Hanschnibbe, Rudy Vobe, Hans Scholl, his sister Sophie Scholl, these young people who were speaking out about what they saw and what was happening, and they just wanted people in Germany to know the truth, the truth that, that was so clear to them. And, of course, they were arrested. Rudy and Karl ended up in prison. Hans and Sophie Scholl, young college students, were executed. So was Helmut Hübner who at the time was only 17 and the youngest political prisoner on death row. And I think about these other protests. We know we have stories in our country of young people who lobby together and fight for for better working conditions, safer working conditions, higher wages. We also see the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests. And what I want to do is mention that these young people who protested Hitler, who protested for better working conditions, the Black Lives Matter protests, that these people are protesting out of truth and how young people do have the energy and the strong sense of justice to stand up for human rights and human dignity and all of the things that the Nazis and Adolf Hitler and other people who lie to our young people are not standing up for today. Award-winning author Susan Campbell Bartoletti from Northeastern Pennsylvania, writer of many kinds of books, but especially known for the work she creates for young people, young adults, on topics from the Great Irish Famine to labor strikes led by young people in the coal mines here in Pennsylvania, in the garment industries and the cotton mills. You can tell from her conversation that she speaks directly to young readers without sugarcoating because she believes in them. And teachers, parents, and other educators celebrate her work for that reason. Her books are widely used in classrooms and other educational settings. We had a chance to speak with her today, Holocaust Remembrance Day, about one of the darkest historical subjects she's ever tackled, and that was the young people who were caught up in the activities of the Hitler Youth. The book is titled Hitler Youth, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow, issued by Scholastic Incorporated Publishing. And it is a winner of too many awards to note. The ALA Best Book for Young Adults Top 10, the Newbery Honor Book for the Year, Parents Gold Choice Award, Publishers Weekly Best Children's Book of the Year, the School Library Journal Best Book of the Year, and many other honors, and it continues to be used widely 
as we say, in classrooms and educational venues. Susan Campbell Bartoletti is from Northeastern Pennsylvania, and she offers readings, workshops, writer-in-residence programs, school and university visits. She takes part in conferences and professional development programs. And in COVID times, she is available for virtual programs. So if you have heard something from Susan today and would like to have her part of a program you're creating, you can reach her at SusanCampbellBartoletti.com. That's her website, and it has information about her biography, her education, her books, and much more. Susan Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, Bartoletti, B-A-R-T-O-L-E-T-T-I.com. And the book is Hitler Youth Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow.